I am really um, honored today to be joined by um, Fred Logeval, uh to talk about his new book, JFK, Coming of Age in the American Century, 1917-1956. For those of you who don't know Fred, he is the Lawrence D. Belfort Professor of International Affairs at Harvard. He's a Pulitzer and Parkman Prize winning author of Embers of War, The Fall of Empire and the Makings of America's Vietnam, and in my opinion, an excellent human being. Just a fine, fine person. So, and somebody I'm honored to, to call a friend. So, uh, Fred, welcome. Glad, if you, glad you could be here. I'm delighted to be with you, Michael, and I uh, look forward to our conversation. <clears throat> I'm looking forward to it too. So I want to, I want to start with a confession. When I first started reading the book, I, um, was a little, had a little bit of trepidation. I was like, I was not sure if I was going to enjoy this book, and here's why. Now I knew that you wrote it, it would be great, but I thought, I know a lot about John F. Kennedy. What am I going to learn that's new in this book that I don't already know? Um, and it turned out I learned a lot. So with that in mind, I, I, I guess I, and I think of a question I asked you when you first told me about this project like five years ago, you know, what, what led you to want to write a book? What motivated you to write a book about John F. Kennedy? Well, so, uh, you know, a few things, I guess. First is that I find him a fascinating figure. I do think, uh, as has been said, the, the Kennedy story is one of the great American stories. Mm-hmm. So I think it was partly that. Um, it was partly, I think, a sense that the, which I knew from previous work, Michael, that the materials at the Kennedy Library mm. are absolutely golden. And I had a sense, again, from working on Kennedy in Vietnam, Kennedy in the Cold War, that at least a substantial amount of this material at the Kennedy Library hasn't really been looked at by a lot of people. We can come back to that issue. So there's that sense that the material's really good. And then I think the third reason why I decided to do this is that though we have thousands of books on the Kennedys, if you take the whole family, uh, most of them, of course, are JFK-centered, but if you take the whole, we have, by one count, I think 40,000 volumes or something. It's just an absurd number. That's insane, yeah. What, What had struck me, and I may have said this to you when you and I first talked about this, is that we have surprisingly few biographies, number one, we don't have a single biography for about 20 years. I think Bob Dalek was 2002 or maybe 2003. And none of these previous biographies, and it's really just a handful, um, none of them really do what I'm attempting to do here, which is two things that I think are new. One is to look closely at his teens and 20s, right. which I think were really important for him. And then secondly, to really contextualize the story. The conceit of the book, in a way, is that I'm, in addition to telling the story of Kennedy's rise in this first volume, and then volume two will be, you know, the, the, the race for the presidency and then the presidency. Uh, in addition to telling the story of his rise, I'm trying to tell the story of America's rise. Right. Uh, and I think you can map it really in some ways on his life. You know, he's born in 1917 right as the U.S. is becoming really a member of the Great Power sure. Club. Sure. He, he, he dies in 63. So I thought, you know what? I can tell that story too. And again, previous biographies, valuable though they are, including Bob Dalek's, they don't really attempt, I think, to do that. Yeah. So I, I'm curious about something because you've written books on the Vietnam War and the origins of the Cold War. I mean, I, I just say, I think your book on choosing war is one of the best books I've read on Vietnam. Did, did you feel in a way that writing on Kennedy would help you sort of better understand or better fill in the gaps on the history books you've already written 
Was it a way of sort of, 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 of helping explain some of that history a little better for yourself? I think so. I mean, that's probably why, and you, you of course have written books yourself. And I, I think often we write books that we would like to read, uh, or we, we, we write books yeah. that, that explain something that we want to better understand. And exactly. I think that's partly true here. I think that, again, I had a sense that this was one of the, it's just a great story. Uh, the Kennedy, it's almost cinematic in, in some respects, but I also wanted to understand better again, the rise of the United States to this incredible position on the, on the, on the global stage. And I had a thought as I was walking in Harvard Yard, this was probably about three years ago, that there could be a kind of double payoff, Michael, in the sense that I could better understand Kennedy by contextualizing. And I could better understand the larger story through the lens of Kennedy. Uh, and so, yeah, no, I think what you're saying is true. That's that's certainly partly what re- led me to do this. You know, it's interesting because I, I thought one of the key themes of the book, you know, obviously, as you just said, is that Kennedy is, is a participant and also a, a, an observer and a bystander in the birth of this American century. I mean, he's sort of involved in it, obviously, but it's also something that, that you know, inf- impacts his life from a, sort of an early age. And I, I was struck by something in particular, that the debate about America's role in the world you know, during the first half of the 20th century, which is obviously a crucial element of the of, the, of what this book is about and about, you know, America's yeah. rise to, to dominance, is a debate that takes place within his own family, yeah. right? I mean, it's sort of a fascinating thing that the debate within his own family is between his father, Joe Kennedy, who spent a lot of time talking yeah. about, who comes across, by the way, as a really interesting figure and more interesting than I had, mm-hmm. had imagined he would be, but mm-hmm. who was obviously a, an isolationist. Um, yeah. And JFK, who, of course, is an internationalist. And I, I, I guess I was sort of curious about that a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, somebody's written a book, written a book about history. Was there a point, did you sort of know this going in that this was going to be this kind of conflict with the Kennedy family? Or was it something that you kind of was researching and reading and you sort of said, aha, this is, this really exemplifies the point I want to get at? Well, I think there's some of both. I, I do think that from previous books, I had a general sense that Joe Kennedy Sr., was, as you say, an arch isolationist. He was an appeaser, uh, you know, really up through Pearl Harbor and even in, to some degree beyond Pearl Harbor, if you can imagine. I had a sense of that. I think I knew that Jack, unlike his older brother, Joe Jr., did begin to separate himself from his father a little bit, especially in 40 and 41 after his graduation from, from Harvard. But I had no idea that, in fact, the materials showing these differences between father and son were as rich as they were. It goes back to the point I made before. I had no idea that Joe Jr. would be as staunch in his sort of unyielding support for his father's position as he would be. And I guess the other thing I would say here, Michael, that I didn't know until I got into the research was the degree to which the senior thesis Yes. JFK's senior thesis, which became his first book, a kind of minor bestseller, uh, called Why England Slept, and which appeared in 1940 and right as France is falling, uh, in the middle part of 1940. I don't think I knew until I got into the research how much the thesis and then book, um, showed in a careful way, but I think a very, uh, distinct way that JFK, young Jack Kennedy was coming to this different position, which was basically that isolationism is untenable. 
for the United States at this moment in time. Uh, and that the United States at some point is going to have to get involved either through helping the British in particular or perhaps in becoming a belligerent itself. That's all stuff that I got through the research. And I, you know, it's interesting because you, you say in the book that why England slept is, is in many ways the repudiation of his, his father's worldview. Um, mm-hmm. but also I struck by the fact that this didn't create a, a real breach between him and his father. And this is the thing that I was really, I thought was fa- to me fascinating. That his father, who I think has a reputation for being, um, you know, a bit of a slippery individual, I think maybe you could say. I mean, there's always always mm-hmm. been allegations of corruption, all the allegations around, you know, 1960 election. Somebody who comes across sort of domineering was incredibly yeah. um, solicitous to his children's sort of rebellion against him or his children's expressing their own point of view. And, and it, it comes across in a way as a, as a really, as a good father, better than I, I actually had imagined. Yeah. I think he was. Um, and, you know, I think this is a singular contribution of David Nassau and his biography of Joe Sr. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's also a theme to a lesser extent in one or two other books about Joe Sr. So I can't claim to be, you know, overturning uh, all existing interpretations about this. I do think, as you just put it really well, Michael, that he was uh, in many respects an excellent father. And I give him credit for this at various points in the book yeah. that, he not only tolerated his children making up their own minds about career choices, maybe especially the boys. Uh, It was a male centered household, no question, but even the girls, but he also tolerated them making their own decisions about their political positions, their worldviews. And so when Jack did begin this important sort of separating from a father to whom he was very devoted very, he very much um, admires his father. Uh, Joe Kennedy is fine with that. And when yeah. later, when he's running for political office, 46 for the House here in the 11th District, 52 against Henry Cabot Lodge for the Senate, and in 60, which I'll talk about in the next volume, of course, whenever they disagreed about political strategy, it was Jack's view that prevailed. Yes. So, you say that you know, a lot in, the, in the, the, yeah. the, the politician section of the book. You make that point a lot, that they... They, he was his key advisor, but when yeah. they disagreed, it yeah. was, it was Jack who, whose, whose vision won out. And I yeah. think in some ways that feels unusual to me. I mean, it, sh- yeah. it shouldn't feel unusual, but I, I keep really these political figures who are so defined by and often negatively by their parents. And yeah. that's not the case with Jack Kennedy. I, I think. I don't it, think it is. Yeah. yeah. I, I think um, and, and that's something like again. That. Again, something that I didn't fully expect to find, even though, as I said, um, two or three of these previous books had begun to put us in that, move us in that direction. I think my own reading of the evidence confirmed it. Again, I don't want to suggest here that he was anything other than devoted to his dad. He admired his father endlessly for his business acumen, but I don't think he ever thought his dad was politically that shrewd. Uh, and I think he didn't have a good feel. Joe Kennedy did. He, he, Joe Kennedy didn't have a good feel for, for what moved human beings. He didn't have a sense of, of sort of the, the, uh, if you will, the romantic dimension of history, which is one thing that drew Jack Kennedy to Winston Churchill. Uh, whereas his father, even as ambassador to Britain, could never understand the appeal of Winston Churchill. It's a fascinating difference between the two, uh, between the two Kennedys. He had a very transactional view of yes, human nature. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and I'll tell you something interesting on the subject of his father. You know, uh, as I read the book, you know, what I, I kept coming back to something about Kennedy himself. I, I have written about this, and you and I have discussed this. You know, I consider I consider Kennedy to be, to be in sort of the pantheon of great presidents for really one reason, <laughs> and, and I mean this sincerely, and that is his handling of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I, I wrote an article years ago about the best foreign policy presidents, and I put him in sort of the top tier because of this, because I always, my view of this was during the Cold War, you know, the key, key issue was to avoid conflict with the Soviet Union, and he did it in the most um, difficult moment in, 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 you know, U.S.-Soviet relations during the Cold War. And what I'm always struck by in this is that, you know, when this debate was going on within the White House about the Soviet missiles in Cuba, you had basically every single person around Kennedy, the executive, the XCOM executive committee, saying you should use military force, including his brother. Yeah. And Kennedy said no. Kennedy stood up to them. And I, I've always thought it's not just that he did the right thing. It's that he had enough self-confidence to do the right thing. And that is a very unusual thing. I mean, you look at someone like we, we, you and I discussed this. If LBJ had been in, had been in yeah. president at the time, I'm not so sure things would have worked out so well. No. Um, or Nixon. Yeah. Or Nixon. Or Nixon. Yeah, uh, if you had one. Yeah, Nixon's the trickier one, right? Because there was some yeah. element of self-confidence there too, but yeah. not the same way there was with, yeah. I mean, certainly with LBJ or, or W or obviously our current president, you know, I mean, or, Trump. I mean, it's not the same thing. So uh, yeah. I guess the thing I'm sort of struck by is that this willingness to go in different directions, willingness to stand up for what he believed in, this willingness to the self-confidence yeah. seemed to come in some respects from his relationship with his father, that yeah. this sort of through line of somebody who throughout his life, you know, really kind of uh, knew what he believed and was willing to sort of stand up, stand up for what he believed in. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also want to mention here his mother, because Rose Kennedy, who often um, doesn't get, it seems to me, the, the the credit, if you will, that she deserves in terms of her son and his upbringing, what she instilled in Jack, I believe, much more so than did Joe Sr., was an interest in history, uh, an interest in uh, books. Uh, he was sick a lot as a child. Uh, and I think much more from her did he get this interest, both, both his love of politics, which we can discuss, which is interesting, but this, uh, historical sensibility, which he then cultivated as he grew older. Right. Uh, I think it's key in my view to explaining what you've just described, Michael, and, and I fully endorse, and of course, this is going to be an important part of volume two, your assessment of the, of the missile crisis. I mean, it's striking to me as I've, I've just recently been going through the XCOM tapes, both the transcripts and the tapes themselves, uh, and how he is, uh, at key moments, the only person, yeah. quite literally in the XCOM who is arguing, pushing for a political solution. Yeah. He shows, and this again is something that goes back to his earlier life. So volume one, he shows a kind of, I don't know what to call it, strategic empathy. So he's telling people in these Dexcom meetings, we've got to put ourselves, put ourselves in Khrushchev's shoes. We've got to try to see this from his perspective. I think that's critically important. And that's something that I think, again, he cultivated quite early. It's partly as a result of this confidence in separating himself from his father, as you say. It's this interest in history, a kind of international sensibility as well, which is a theme in the book. Uh, and it, he carries it right through, I think, to the end in, in Dallas. And I think it's interesting you say that because when I think about the why England slept, I mean, the basic argument of the book, if, I, if I'm understanding correctly, is just that, is, you know, he's not, 
He's saying England did not respond to Hitler's provocations in Czechoslovakia and elsewhere yeah. because they weren't politically. There wasn't really support for that for that kind of a a, a step. They, the, the people were still yeah. exhausted from the war. They didn't want to fight another war. There's yeah. an almost a I don't say sympathy is the wrong word, but uh, understanding mm-hmm. of why England yeah. left, why England you know didn't didn't react more forcefully and and. It's not like the sort of kind of black and white argument about well they were they were weak and they were appeasers. No, there was actually a it wasn't a lot of political a, a popular support for that. So there's a no. sort of understanding there that that you don't see often from. And this was written when he was 22, I believe, right? The, the one yeah, the, 22, 23. Yeah, mm-hmm. that kind of uh, understanding of politics is really impressive. Yeah, and I, I think it's 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 just fascinating to me that. Um, uh, you know, there's 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 not much of a difference between the thesis and the book, and he only had a week or two to revise the thesis before he had to submit it to the publisher. So there's not a lot of time. And again, so much happening in world affairs. France is falling. Britain looks to be next. But an important difference between the two, uh, and this is partly based on advice he got from Arthur Crock, the journalist. Partly advice he got from his father was that, in fact, he needed to hold Chamberlain and Baldwin before Chamberlain. He needed to hold British leaders somewhat more responsible. Because, as you say, the thesis is basically saying that this is structural. This is because interest groups in Britain, uh, British public opinion, would not stand for a massive rearmament program, would not stand for uh, getting really tough with Hitler. Appeasement, in other words, had broad support. And people said to him, again, you've only got a week or two to do this, but you should actually acknowledge here, especially now that the Chamberlain government has fallen, mm. that well, the truth is they could have they could have done more than they 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 did. So he 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 modified the argument in an interesting way for the book, uh, while still holding to the basic thesis of the book, the thesis of the thesis. Right. Right. And it's interesting, you know, I, I think there's an image today of Kennedy because of his inaugural address that, you know, where he talks about America, you know, pay any price, bearing any burden, yeah. um, as someone who's, who was a cold warrior. And, you know, he was yeah. certainly strongly anti-communist. But what, what comes across in the book, especially um, during his service in the Pacific in yeah. the Navy, is that he was um, um, very hostile toward war. <laughs> I don't know where to put it. He was not a, he was somebody yeah. who was very skeptical about war. And was very sympathetic with those who who serve, veterans who serve, and their own. You know, he sort of he, he, there's an interesting element in there, and you talk about the disconnect between the way that people talk about military service and the yeah. actual reality of it. And it's yeah. nowhere near as glamorous as it is often portrayed. And, and yeah. he makes a big point about saying this, and it's interesting. Yeah, I, I think it's true, and I think he was a little older than some of the other um, people he served with. He was 26. And maybe partly for that reason, uh, he took, uh, um, he took that particular view of warfare. I think he came out of the war, uh, with two convictions that in some ways he carried with him to the end. And I talk a bit about this in the book. The first is, as you say, a skepticism about the utility of military force, yeah. a blunt instrument that he was not convinced could actually work in solving political problems. I think he, and this is something he wrote about in letters and some diary entries. Uh, I think he felt that in 1944 when he returns to the United States. Second, and almost in a way paradoxical, is that he also came out of the war with the conviction that the United States must play a leadership position in world affairs. Uh, he believed in collective security, so this had to be in concert with other nations. But he also felt that that the United States had to be 
really, you know, first among equals. It had to be not just in a leadership position, but the leadership position. So I think he's going to, for the remainder of his days, and this will be something I explore in volume two, grappling with this. I also will say just quickly, Michael, that you're so right about, uh, at least you're implying, I think, that we tend to misread the inaugural address. Mm -hmm. Yes. Because we always quote that line that you just quoted. Yes. Whereas if you look at the thing as a whole, and it's only, it's a masterful 1300 and 1300 and some odd words. Yes. Just, uh, I think it's right up there in the, maybe it's not quite with Lincoln's second inaugural or FDR's first. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's in 1801 is a, is a magnificent work as well, but it's, it's in the top group. Yeah. But if you look at it as a whole, it's actually not a belligerent sort of hawkish, uh, inaugural address at all. Um, and he argues for negotiations. Exactly. Um, he argues for, um, peaceful resolution to international problems. We overinterpret a particular line. Now, I will also say, as I show in the book, that early in the Cold War, partly, I think, for domestic political reasons, for careerist reasons, mm-hmm. he's a pretty vociferous Cold Warrior, but he begins to shift in important ways uh, in the years that follow and maybe especially after he reaches the, the White House. I mean, I will be interested in reading your take on, because I've written a little bit about this myself, and uh, about the way that he he ran for president in 1960 and the extent yeah. to which he played on cold war fears to yeah. win the election and whether, yeah. you know, how you sort of square that with what mm-hmm. you just said. Uh, and yeah. I get, look, I get politics. I understand you're a politician, uh, but it is interesting to sort of, I think you're right. The image of image of him, I think is as somebody who was a cold, a strident cold warrior. And that's not the image that comes across at all in the book. And, yeah. uh, and I think also, if you look at the last year of his presidency, I think it's also the case. I think, you know, yeah. I, and also, in the, of course, keep missile crisis, right? I mean, yeah. starting Cold Warrior would have handled that situation, I think, very differently than, than Kennedy did. Um, yeah. I, I wanted to, there was one thing about talking about him as a politician. Um, and it's interesting because I don't think I, even though I spent a lot of time thinking about politicians, I didn't think, I haven't thought much about Kennedy as a politician. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, you talk about it early in the book in the introduction. You say that he was a loner, a self-contained person who in a sort of competitive family situation, he withdrew somewhat into himself. Yeah. Uh, insulate himself from other people, which, by the way, I was thought that described Bobby Kennedy a little bit. So I was so surprised to see it described Jack Kennedy. Um, but those are odd qualities for a politician. And there's a detachment and a, almost an aloofness yeah. to him that seems like an odd quality for a politician. And yet when I think about it, a lot of great politicians have that quality. Uh, yeah. I think of Obama being a sort of somewhat detached yeah. leader who's a yeah. phenomenal politician. Yeah. To some extent, Nixon and Reagan, you can describe the same way. I mean, talk to me a little bit about, about, Kennedy is a politician. Did, do you think yeah. that detachment, that sense of sort of being a little bit above the, the fray, do you think that that made him a better politician and made him more appealing to, to voters? I think maybe ultimately it did. It's a really good question. I do think that early on, and I write about the 46 campaign, which I found so interesting to research, yeah. Yeah. Uh, that he was not a particularly effective campaigner, that there was a kind of reticence that was in some respects, quite extreme, that he was shy. He was not somebody who wanted to kiss babies and, you know, be wandering into bars and chatting up people. Uh, there was a, a reserve that I think was a problem for his campaign staff in 46. Um, but I think as he became better at this, um, uh, better as a campaigner, uh, better as an orator. He was not very good in, in the beginning in terms of his speech making. 
I do think that it served his purposes and that, that the degree to which there was this detachment um, uh, and, as I think you put it, sort of floating above it all in, in a certain way, I think resonated with a lot of voters because it's clear in that first campaign, skinny 29-year-old yeah. doesn't really know what he's doing. It's clear that somehow he connected with people. This is a theme, uh, both at the time and in later oral histories, that people just liked him, especially in somewhat smaller settings where maybe he spoke to 20 people or 30 people or 40 people. Uh, there was something that really worked. I think key here, by the way, both then and later, is this um, self-deprecating sense of humor that he had. Uh, I think that he used that beautifully um both then and i think right up you know through the 1960 election and beyond if you if you check out on youtube which i recommend to people those press presidential press conferences uh the degree to which he's able to use humor effectively there i think it really worked for him um but yeah it's a long way of saying michael that i do think that his uh, his sort of standing apart being an observer as I say about about his family, he was of the family, but also outside the family. Right, right. Yeah, I think it worked for him as a politician. It's funny you mentioned self-deprecation because I've, I've long had this view that self-deprecation is one of the most important qualities to have as a yeah. as a politician. The yeah. other one is is I always think is discipline. And and again, another thing I'm I'm struck by in the book. And again, I, there's this you mentioned this early on. There's this sort of a disconnect between the mythology of JFK and the reality of JFK. And, you know, I think a lot of people sort of see him as this very charming, almost roguish figure who really feels yeah. like some looks and based on his oratory. Yeah. But one that comes across, especially, I think, in the in, in what you write about his campaign for Senate in, in 52, is that he worked yeah. his ass off. This yeah. guy, this yeah. guy worked hard. This guy traveled. This guy, this guy did, you know, did every tea, uh, you could talk about these tea parties he would do. He did all these events that he did. I mean, he really worked, yeah. worked hard. Yeah, I think it's it's a it's a key to success, um, and I think uh, candidates today, anybody who happens to be, um, you know, tuning into this, um, could 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 learn from him in the sense that I think a key to his victories in '46, in '52, and in '60, but also of course also to the extent that he had the campaign for House re-election and Senate re-election, it applies. But especially those three campaigns, a key is that he he worked harder. And he started earlier than his doctor. And what's fascinating about this, of course, is that he's got these health problems throughout. And it's almost, Michael, as though he wants to show people that he's not debilitated by these ailments. Uh, he's going to show them that he can still go quite literally from dawn until you know yeah. midnight, day after day after day. And he does. And I think it's a key it's a key for political success. I mean, that and the fact that they also realized that they, there was no substitute for meeting voters, being out there, having lots of volunteers face to face. That was another key to his political success, which I think also has contemporary resonance. Yeah. Yeah. But you're so right. He worked really, really hard in all these campaigns. So I just have two more last things I want to ask you about it. And, and one is, um, and again, I, I keep quoting things from the opening of the book. I want to assure you, I didn't read the entire book, but I keep, <laughs> <laughs> there are always things in the opening that just out to me when I was reading. I'm like, oh, I got to remember that. And so you said something. I thought, I remember, I remember thinking at the time it was interesting. You said the man known universally by his initials, JFK, yeah. obviously, has been swept away by mythology. And the JFK legend yeah. is 
you're the real life Kennedy, rendering him opaque and inscrutable. Which, by the way, I, you know, just based on our our conversations, this feels like a very Logovolian kind of a, a sentence right there, actually. Um, but I guess I'm kind of curious then, why did you title the book JFK? I mean, in a way, I feel like yeah. you're, you're kind of bursting yeah. that JFK myth. Yeah. So why call it JFK? Yeah, well, you know what? Nobody's asked me that question. I'm not <laughs> sure I've thought about it. Part of this was a discussion with my... Um, my excellent editors at Random House, because we went back and forth on, you know, what should we call it? Uh, and we need to look ahead to the second volume. Uh, and therefore what, you know, we have to think about both the title and the subtitle. Um, and I don't know, uh, quite honestly, who then decided in the end, or who at least pushed in the end most vociferously for just calling it simply JFK. Um, but you're right. There's a little bit of a disconnect there because in fact, as you also said, quoting me, that I want to, I want to, I want to burst that. Um, I want to challenge that mythology, and then the way that we do that is, uh, I think, again, looking at especially the early years when he's still finding his way in the world. He's still finding his way within this large Irish Irish Catholic family, figuring things out. Um, he's got these incredible diaries that we can uh, access as historians and biographers. The letters the family kept a voluminous correspondence. So I argue, and I still believe, that we have to look at him closely before he becomes known, uh, you know, as JFK, which is um, quite late. There's an interesting discussion about whether he should sort of, whether he wants to be known as JFK uh, or not, which comes later in volume two. But, um, but that's, that's why it seems to me it's important, again, uh, I'm repeating myself, but why it's important to look at this, these formative years in his life. And when you talk about sweep away the mythology, I mean, is that, do you, I mean, you talk, what, I guess the question, what, what do you think are sort of the most salient facts about Kennedy that are obscured by the mythology? You know, what is it that, yeah. besides this, this sort I, of early life evolution, what are we not seeing about him that the mythology I, I think, and you alluded to this before, Michael, but I guess if I were to single out one thing, at least to start with, I would say that what the mythology obscures is that this is a serious guy from an early age. That the, the, the callow sort of playboyish Kennedy of our imaginations is actually not really there. Uh, that even as a college student right down the road from where I'm sitting today, a few blocks, um, this is a guy, I mean, you can see this in his college papers, uh, never mind the senior thesis, that this is a guy who thinks seriously, he treats serious things seriously, as I put it in the book. Yeah. And in particular, and maybe it's no surprise because this, this is the late 1930s when there is the Nazi German threat and the imperial Japanese threat. He thinks a lot about democracy. What are the challenges of democracy? Yeah. How, as a democratic leader, can you do what you think is right for the country while not alienating your fickle constituents. This is going to be a theme. It's, it's there in the first book, Why England Slept. It's there in Profiles in Courage, 1956. Uh, it's something that I think he's still thinking about a lot as president. And of course, talk about something that has resonance for us today. Um, so I think I would pick that as a, as, uh, and there are others too about, uh, about who he was, but that, maybe would be the one, Michael, that I would pick, that this is a serious guy uh, who 
thinks about these things long and hard well before he becomes uh, president. Yeah, I mean, I think I think one thing I definitely took away from this book was that I think I view him as a much more substantive figure than I think I had before. And I, and I think that's, that to me is, there's lots of reasons to read this book. I couldn't put it down. I really enjoyed it. Mm, I thought, so glad. Um, but aside from the sort of the, the enjoyment, the edification of reading a, a really interesting biography, I think the thing I learned from it, at least about JFK was just the, the seriousness of him as a person. And I think, you know, if we can sort of globalize it, how important an attribute that is for somebody who runs for, for politician and someone who runs for president. I mean, I think you can't really look. We we have the most unserious person yeah. probably in America as president. You know, as we're recording this, but I think that you know, and, and obviously you want someone more serious than him. But I think it does speak to to just the kind of character and quality of the kind of person you want as president. And he really had those attributes. Yeah, I, I think it's I, I think it's so right. Uh, and it's not to say, of course, I should say here before we finish. Um, you know, he made mistakes. Sure. Uh, he did, he, he did not always live up to the title of the Profiles in Courage book, not, notably on McCarthyism. We haven't talked about McCarthy and, and JFK's uh, response or lack of response to McCarthy, which is an important part of the book. It's not his finest chapter. He could be, he could be the, um, the overly cautious politician on occasion, and he could make decisions based on on sort of crass uh, uh, careerist motives. But throughout it all, uh, I do think he's somebody who who took politics seriously, precisely because he believed in the importance of politics, it's, the importance exactly, of government, exactly. uh, the importance of democracy and democratic leadership. I think that's there throughout. Yeah, and I, and that actually, it's funny. It leads to my my last question, and um. This might be a tough one to answer, but I'm curious what you have to say about it. You know, when I was working on my, I'm not an historian. I, I pretended to be one at various points, but I, I'm not one. And but when I was reading my, I was when I was researching the book I did on 1968, I read a lot of biographies, and I was always struck by something that you could kind of tell about halfway through a book, um, uh, whether the author liked his subject, her her subject, hmm. her subject, or didn't like them. And the best example of this I always thought was. Dominic Sandbrook's biography of, of, of oh, yeah. Arthur, who yeah. it was obvious that he began to truly dislike this man. And I thought actually, you know, um, undermined the book because it was clear that he just didn't like him. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious. I mean, this may be a hard question to answer, but I'm curious. Yeah. Do you like John F. Kennedy? What do you think yeah. about him as a person? Yeah. I do. I do like him. And I, and of course it's a, it's, um, I don't know if trap is the right word, but it's a, Let's say it's a trap that biographers can fall into. They become too attached to their subject. Uh, and, and Dominic is a, is a good counterexample. And we can think of other counterexamples. It almost seems to be one or the other that, but, uh, but I, I'm conscious as I write this. And of course, there's still a volume that I'm working on, the second volume. I'm conscious of, 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 of that, that you can become too, you can become too close. Uh, I'm trying, uh, I hope with success to humanize Kennedy to make this, in less elegant words, a warts and all biography. Mm-hmm. But I do, I do like him. Uh, I like, I like his historical sensibility. Uh, I like this, uh, self-deprecating sense of humor that we talked about. I like the fact that he, uh, took things seriously. Uh, he prided himself on knowing the details of policy. Quite often he knew more about particular policy items that they were discussing yeah. than the advisors in the room. Um, 
he believed in reasoning from evidence, which seems to me is important in our own day. <laughs> and and I guess I would say maybe especially with respect to today, Michael, um, he believed in the importance of good faith bargaining among politicians, between yeah. politicians and between the parties. Now, you could say that that seems kind of naive today because of our differences. You could say it's quaint. Um, but ultimately, it seems to me in a democracy, politicians have to be committed to that. And I think that, uh, I think that he was, he was not a particularly ideological person. He was not particularly even partisan, which makes you wonder how he would fare in today's climate. But for me, at least, there's something very appealing about that side of his personality. You know, it's interesting you said that because one thing that I thought about, and I wasn't sure if I should even bring this up, but, but now you've, you sort of let me to do it is that, you know, uh, he's somebody who believed in political compromise because I think, you tell me if you think I'm wrong, but because he believed that, that was the essence of democracy, oh, yeah. essence of successful democracy, that it wasn't just, you know, a, play, a way to get from point A to point B, no. which it, it may very well be, but it's also, it's also the only way that democracy can function properly. And yeah. I feel like when I hear Joe Biden today talk about this idea of working with Republicans and the fever will pass and so on yeah. that he's saying this, not because it's you know politically helpful to him. And I think it probably was politically helpful, but because I think he, he truly believes it that, yeah. he thinks that democracy only su- succeeds if people can sit down and work together. And I, I, it may seem impossible in 2021, but it yeah. seems clearly correct. I think it is. I, I wrote an op-ed in the London in the London times a um, few months ago now, in which I talked about JFK's legacy for the Democrats and Biden in particular. And I, 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 I stress this point. I so agree with you. In fact, I would say that the naive view is actually the opposite one. The naive view is the one that says you don't have to compromise, uh, or that you, sh- you know, that you shouldn't. Um, uh, I think, and I don't know when the time will come. But at some point, um, if our American democracy is going to flourish in the way that we want it to flourish, uh, this has to be part of the equation, that, that, that you've got to have good faith bargaining between the parties. Uh, and you don't compromise principles. In fact, Kennedy talked about this at certain points, uh, and inc- including in Profiles and Courage. And by the way, I recommend to people the, the, con- the, the introduction to that book and the conclusion to that book which I argue uh, JFK himself was largely responsible for, Ted Sorensen, that did much of the work on the actual case studies of the senators that are profiled. But in the intro and in the conclusion, he talks about this. It's not that one com- uh, compromises principles, but you compromise on policy. Uh, and you also recognize that nobody has a monopoly on truth in this world. Yeah. Um, you know, again, a difficult thing perhaps for, for us today to fully grasp, but there's truth there. You know, I'll just say last night, I, I wrote this column a few, a few months ago about urging Democrats if they, they take the Senate and the House and the presidency that they should just sort of ram through their agenda on day one. They should get rid of the filibuster. They should pack for judges. They should expand voting rights. They should make DC a state. And I said, I gave all the reasons why they should do this and at the end, but I said, it, it gives me kind of sadness to write this. Because this isn't how a functional democracy should work. This is this is kind of the way a parliamentary democracy might work. You know, in the sense that yeah. one party has power, they get their agenda. The other party has power, they do their agenda. But yeah. you know, we've kind of reached the point, unfortunately, in American politics where that's kind of the only way you get anything done, because there is yeah. sort of no middle ground to be found. That's, I mean, and that may be the reality of where we are. It's not where you want to be. It's not. It no, it's it, be effective or functional. 
I don't, I think that's exactly right. It may be where we are, but it's not where we want to be. And um, though, as you know, I read your columns religiously. I think that particular one, Michael, I missed. I should go back and look at it. <laughs> I, but, but, but I think, in fact, uh, there's a powerful argument for what you say, but I would also be at the conclusion of that kind of a column, be, uh, be sad about it because I don't yeah. think, I don't think over the long term, it's healthy for uh, for our democracy, or even even workable uh, on some level. It, it's not workable, not not the system that we have. Well, anyway, listen, this was a great conversation, and uh, you know, I can't recommend this book enough. I truly enjoyed reading it, and um, and uh, you know, as I said, I went into it with some trepidation, but came out of it really happy that I, I took the time to read it and and how much I enjoyed it. And then, and of course, it was just a pleasure talking to you today, Fred, as always. Wow. Well, it's always so great. Uh, and I love this uh, from start to finish. Thanks so much for having me on, Michael. Um, let's, let's do it again soon. Absolutely. We definitely should.